Well, good morning again. Our scripture reading, our sermon text for this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. If you could turn with me there to Matthew 11, verses 28 through chapter 12, verse 21. Before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word uh, that we just sang about, uh, that, that here we find uh, the gospel, uh, here we find forgiveness, here we find your grace and your mercy. And uh, we pray, Father, that, uh, that you would allow us to find these things this morning. As we turn to your word, as we, as we hear it read and preached, I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts that you would humble us before your word, that you would show us, uh, that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would show us your Son, our Savior Jesus, in all of his glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. <clears throat> he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Well, which of us doesn't know what it's like to be weary? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor or all who are weary. 
and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus comes to offer rest to the weary. Where are you weary this morning? Where are you heavy laden? Where are you trapped in a cycle of seemingly endless labor and frustration? Uh, Maybe it's physical, maybe it's vocational, uh, maybe or or just as likely it's relational or emotional or, or spiritual. Where are you weary? Where are you burdened? Where are you loaded down with the cares of life? We're going to talk about three things this morning. You can see them on the back of your bulletin where you'll find an outline for this morning's sermon. We're going to talk about our desperate need of rest. We're going to talk about a misunderstanding of God's rest. And we're going to talk about taking on the yoke of Jesus. So first, let's let's talk about our desperate need for rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. First thing we need to notice is this is an invitation. Jesus is inviting you who are weary. He doesn't specify anything more than this. If you are weary, if you are burdened with life, Jesus is inviting you to come to him. He doesn't ask for any other qualification other than that you be weary. That's it. Are you weary? If so, this is an invitation for you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Well, as an invitation to those who are weary, we might ask, well, what does Jesus mean by weary? And uh, the the various translations of this word, sometimes labor, sometimes weary, are due to the fact that the word means both, right? And and better, maybe, at times it means weariness caused by labor. That's what Jesus is saying. He's talking about, uh, he's calling out to those who have labored, those who have worked in one way or another, and as a result are worn out because of what they've done. They're weary from their work. They're tired. And there are lots of ways that we feel weary. There are lots of burdens which we are heavy laden with. We might be weary from our schoolwork or weary from our jobs or weary from from family obligations. We might, uh, for me, it's often I'm weary from striving to try to control life, right? To try to manage and direct every occurrence. It's really exhausting trying to play God. But there are two kinds of Labor, two kinds of weariness, two kinds of burdens, in addition to many others, I'm sure, but two kinds in particular that Jesus probably has in mind here. And that is the burden of sin and the burden of religious performance. The burden of sin and the burden of religion. First, the burden of sin. I mean, we tend to think that sins are those fun things that God and our parents don't want us to do. But but this is one of the great lies of the devil, isn't it? Because sins are really a burden, a deadly burden. In the beginning, God created man free, free to enjoy the Father's love, free to enjoy the Father's world, free to enjoy life. Humanity rebelled. We refused to submit to God. We tried to run life our own way. And as a result, we have made a mess 
a mess out of ourselves, a mess out of our relationships, a mess out of our world. Sin is a burden. First, sin brings guilt and regret and shame. Adam and Eve, immediately after they sin, they hide from God in the garden. They cover their bodies for shame. Because of sin, we no longer live under God's love. We live under his disappointment at our sin, his disappointment with us. We look up and see only the the frown of a disapproving God, and it's a burden, it's a weight upon our souls. Sin also brings slavery and, and, and addiction and compulsion. I mean, which of us hasn't known something was wrong, and yet we did it anyway? Right? Why do we do that? Because sin makes us addicts. Sin makes us slaves. We know something is bad for us, but we keep going back. We can't seem to stop. We simultaneously believe the lies that this thing is going to make us happy, and yet we know it's a lie. But nevertheless, we, we, we become slaves to sin, and so we keep going back again and again and again. So sin brings guilt, sin brings slavery, but sin also brings broken relationships and broken families and a broken society. I mean, again, immediately after the first sin, Adam and Eve, they hide their bodies from one another. They begin to blame one another. God says the process of, of bringing up children is going to be a source of pain. Marriage relationship itself, we see in, in that first marriage, becomes a place of fighting for control and interpersonal strife. And so all the relationships that, that on every level have, have begun to fall apart, all of the relationships that were supposed to be a source of, of joy and companionship, they become a source of pain and frustration. That's part of the burden of sin. A sin also brings toil. Uh, our, our work in the beginning was good. God created us to, to work and to enjoy our work and to find pleasure and satisfaction in our work. Adam was placed in the garden to cultivate the ground. But God cursed the ground as a result of sin. Our work has often become toilsome and and wearying and frustrating. It seems to be a never-ending battle of, of papers and phone calls and meetings and machines and food to prepare and rooms to clean. A never-ending line of kids and customers and patrons and patients. And oftentimes, it's just the routine boredom of doing something we see little value in and little purpose for. Sin brings guilt. It brings slavery. It brings broken relationships. It brings toil. And finally, sin brings death. It brings sickness and disease. Death was one of the curses on humanity's rebellion. You remember, from dust you came, God says, and to dust you will return. When we experience the breakdown of our bodies, we are experiencing God's curse on Adam's sin. So sin is a burden. Sin is a burden on your conscience, bringing guilt and shame. It's a, it's a burden on your will, making you, making you uh, slaves to self-destructive behavior. It's a burden on your relationships, bringing strife and fighting and bickering and one-upmanship. It's a burden on your work, bringing frustration and toil. It's a burden on your body, taking its toll over a lifetime of abuse. And of course, it's a burden on our souls. Because when we sin, we put ourselves in debt to God's justice. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And so death is both a wage that we earn and a debt that we owe. And whichever analogy you use, right, sin is a burden to our souls. Do you know your sin? Do you know the weight of it? Do you know that the the burden that sin brings? Jesus says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sin is not only a burden, it's not the only burden, right? But there's also the burden of of religious performance. You see, no sooner do we rebel against God than we try to appease him with the work of our hands. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, right, tried to appease God by offering him some fruit. He didn't have a heart devoted to God. He was just trying to buy God off, just trying to make God happy with what he did. And we do the same thing, but just with, with different types of bribes. You see, very often we see religion as, as performing a set of religious acts, doing a certain number of good deeds, following a certain set of rules. And if we can live up, if we can perform, if we can be good, then God will love us or at least tolerate us. You see, we, we look up and we picture a scowl on God's face, and so we decide, I know, if I, just, if I just do the right things for a little while, maybe I can make God happy with me. And this burden is, is actually very much in the context of our passage. You know, one of the Old Testament uh, verses that is echo, echoed in Matthew 11 is Jeremiah 6, which was read earlier. In Jeremiah 6, God says, uh, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. What did the people do instead in Jeremiah? What did they do instead of walking in God's paths and finding rest for their souls? Well, they didn't pay attention to God's word. They, They rejected his law, but they also became very religious So much so that God has to say to them in Jeremiah, what use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. See, when the human heart rejects God, it doesn't always become unreligious. Sometimes it becomes very, very religious. We treat religion as a means to make God happy with us. If I, just, if I just read my Bible enough or pray enough or give enough or serve enough or go to church enough, then I can find God's smile return. This really is a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. Because if I've jumped on to religion with both feet, I, I can't stop or else I may fall short. And God will cease to love me. He'll cease to smile. But if we've tried, right, if we've tried and failed at religion, if we've tried to be good religious people, but we find that we just can't do it, then I feel doubly guilty because I feel the weight of the guilt of my sin, but I also feel a false guilt for having not been able to be religious enough or to be good enough to make God like me. Well, have you tried this? Have you tried religious performance as a way of trying to gain God's approval? Have you, have you jumped on the treadmill, as it were, of, of being good Do you feel like God is happy with you because of how good you are? Do you think he approves of your religious works and he approves of you because of the religious things that you do? Well, he does not. God will never accept religion as a substitute for righteousness. Or maybe you've jumped on the treadmill and fallen off, or maybe you just think, well, I'm just not even good enough to try that whole religion thing. And so you live in the thought that God could never accept you. God could never love you because you are not like those religious people who seem to have it all together. Well, notice what Jesus says here. Jesus says what? Come to me, all you who are religious and have gotten it all together, and you will find rest. That's not what he says, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus promises rest 
And the rest, he promises, is at least rest from sin and its effects, rest from sin and its consequences, and even rest from religious performance. I think about how Jesus does this. He comes into the world as a man. He always does what the Father wants him to do. He doesn't jump on the treadmill of religious performance. No, he simply lives righteously. He always does what pleases the Father. And then Jesus goes to the cross for our sin. He bears the curse of God for sin. He bears our guilt and he takes our shame upon himself. He bears the burden of our slavery by placing himself under sin's destructive power by submitting to death. He bears the burden of broken relationships by being rejected by men and betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter and ultimately forsaken by his father for us on the cross. He bears the burden of our toil by spending three years ministering to the needs of others only to see it end up in his unjust execution and everyone abandoning him. He bears the burden of sickness and disease and death by taking our death upon himself. He bears the burden of our soul by satisfying the wrath of the Father for us, by paying our debt, by receiving our wages for our sin. You see, Jesus bears the whole burden of sin in his death on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rises from the dead, receiving life as a gift from the Father. Right? The Father rejected the Son in the cross, but he received the, there he received the Father's frown of disapproval for us. But the Father accepted the Son in his resurrection. The resurrection is the restored smile of the Father upon the Son. Right? Because Jesus came at the Father's command to bear sin in our place, because Jesus did that in obedience to the Father, because Jesus completed the work of the, that the Father had given him to do, Jesus received the Father's approval, his pleasure in the resurrection. And so now Jesus can say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because when we come to Jesus, he takes our sin and religious performance and he gives us his righteousness. Which means when we come to Jesus, he takes the Father's disappointment with us and he gives us the Father's approval. Which means when we come to Jesus, he takes the Father's disapproving frown and he gives us the Father's delighted smile. See, if you come to Jesus by trusting in his work on your behalf, he will take your sin and the Father will smile on you with approval. But you say, but my sin is so great. I've done so many bad things. Well, Jesus will take your sin. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I've done so little good in my life. I've never quite gotten it right. Well, Jesus will give you his righteousness. And that's the gospel. Come to Jesus and the burden of your sin is gone. And so the motive to get on the religious treadmill is gone as well. Right? You are accepted in him, not in your performance. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Now, we've spent a lot of time looking really at one sentence in this passage, talking about the invitation of Jesus, talking about the burdens of sin and, and religious performance and the offer of Jesus to come and find rest. In light of that, we're going to move more quickly through the rest of the passage, looking at the, the remaining verses in light of this invitation of Jesus. First, we're going to look at the misunderstanding of God's rest that the Pharisees had. In the first half of chapter 12, we find two stories. The first story is of Jesus and his disciples. They're walking uh, through the field on the Sabbath day, and the disciples are picking heads of grain and eating them. And the Pharisees get upset at this, and they begin to make accusations. 
They say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Why are you letting your disciples do this? And the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is allowing his disciples to pick heads of grain, to eat them on the Sabbath day, because to them, this is work. Uh, They considered picking heads of grain and rubbing it in their hands and blowing off the chaff, harvesting grain and threshing and winnowing, and above all, it was preparing food. Therefore, it was work. This, they said, was against the law on the day of rest. And then there's a second story where you have more uh, people, probably also some of the Pharisees, and they question Jesus as to whether it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. See, they're trying to trap him. They, they want him to heal a, a, a lame man so that they can accuse him of working on the Sabbath day. Now, both of these controversies, you may see, revolve around the Sabbath day, the day of rest. The day of rest. The Sabbath is a day of rest commanded by God in the Ten Commandments. It's one of the big ten. Not universities, but commandments. Right? It's part of God's moral law. And so the religious people of the day are very concerned to keep it. And Jesus rebukes them, and he basically says that they have a faulty view of religion. They have a faulty view of the law. They're they're focused on the rules, especially man-made rules about the Sabbath, which they had plenty. Their focus on the rules causes them to miss the heart of God, to miss what, what God thinks is truly important. They In this passage, we see they miss mercy, they miss the Messiah, and they miss the value of man. Right? They miss mercy. When Jesus' disciples are accused of breaking the law by picking heads of grain, Jesus' response is actually kind of odd. Uh, he says in verses 3 and 4, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, in essence, it seems like Jesus is saying, don't you remember David broke the law to provide for his men? That's what it seems like he's saying, right? And and then he says in verse 5, he says, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So again, Jesus says, the priests profane the Sabbath day. To profane something is to treat it as if it were not holy, right? So, so they don't treat the Sabbath as if it were holy, which is what the fourth commandment commands. The priests profane the Sabbath day. That is, they treat what is holy as if it were not. And they do this for the sake of performing their temple duties. Okay? And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Okay? How do all these stories fit together? Well, first, Jesus says very clearly that his disciples, like David's men and like the priests, are guiltless. Right? If you had known what this means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So he's saying his men and David and the priests, they're they're guiltless. They haven't really broken God's law, only in the eyes of the Pharisees had the law been broken. What is the principle then, right, by which David could get away with eating the holy bread and the priests could get away with working on the holy day and and the principle by, by which his men could... Pluck, his disciples could pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. Well, the principle is this. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And what this means in Hosea is that God wants his people to show mercy, not mindlessly perform religious duties. That's the idea. 
And David showed mercy to his men by giving them the holy bread. The priests show mercy to Israel when they perform their temple duties, which maintain the people and their relationship to God. The Pharisees are focused on religious rules, mostly that they themselves had made up, right? Rather than showing mercy to those who needed it, which caused them to nitpick and to condemn the guiltless, as Jesus says. And more than that, they miss mercy here, but they also miss the Messiah, I mean, Jesus ends his words about the priests saying something greater than the temple is here. It's not just that God wants mercy and not religious performance, though that's true, but that God is doing something amazing right in front of their eyes and they're missing it. Jesus' comparison to David and his men is really a more fitting analogy than we first realized, right? David is the Messiah, God's anointed one in the Old Testament, on his mission with his men. And here is Jesus, God's true Messiah, God's final anointed one, on his messianic mission with his men. And if the Messiah David could share holy bread with his men, how much more can the Messiah Jesus share a few heads of grain with his men? Similarly, if it just is the priests who maintain God's presence and the people's relationship to the Father through the whole temple system, just as the, the priests do that, so Jesus has come to put an end to the old temple system because he is God's presence. He's come to offer the ultimate sacrifice to purchase mercy for God's people. So he's come, he's, he's something greater than the temple. It's Jesus there in their midst. God is at work right before their eyes in the Messiah to bring mercy to his people, but they're too blind to see it because they're narrowly focused on satisfying a set of religious obligations. And they miss mercy, they miss the Messiah. They also miss the value of mankind, right? They think what is most valuable are our prophets and not people. You see, when they asked Jesus if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they thought that they had him. You see, they knew that Jesus would heal. That's what Jesus kept going around healing everybody who asked him. They knew he would heal. Therefore, he would, quote, break the Sabbath in their minds. And then they could accuse him. And so Jesus, he just asks a very simple question in verse 11. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? As Jesus knew that, that anyone who has a sheep would indeed pull it out of a pit on the Sabbath, right? Why? Because sheep were their livelihood. I mean, sheep are their money and their food and their clothing all in one, right? I mean, this is, this is everything to them. And so Jesus says in verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. See, they seek to accuse Jesus, but he ends up really accusing them. You see the accusation of Jesus? See, they value sheep. You value personal property and money and clothing and food and whatever else you might get from sheep. But you don't value people. Your heart is all wrong. You're focused on profits and not your fellow man. So what Jesus is saying to these People, again and again, he's saying, you're focused on these rules, but you're missing God's heart. You're missing mercy. You're missing the Messiah. You're missing the value of man. And all of that adds up to missing what the Sabbath is all about. See, they're trying to keep the law of God while missing the heart of God. They completely misunderstand, as a result, what the law is all about. They misunderstand what the Sabbath is all about. Really, if you look at the end of the story, Jesus asks in verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful, he says, to do good on the Sabbath. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. See, here Jesus demonstrates really what the Sabbath is all about. 
The Sabbath is about entering in to the rest of wholeness, the, the, really the new creation that Jesus was bringing. And Jesus is enabling this man to enjoy rest in this way, maybe for the first time in his life, of being whole, of being healed, of being full. And the Sabbath day is a day to remember that and delight in that, to remember and, and delight in the rest that God had given to his people. A day to delight in the fullness of God's blessings. And so a day to share those blessings with others, to give rest as well as to receive it. What's the Pharisees' response to this in verses 14 and 16? Look at, look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. The Pharisees want to destroy Jesus. They're so upset. All their arguments, all their religious rules, uh, and, and all of their arguments about the Sabbath have been squashed by the logic of Jesus. And their real problem, we see, is not their misunderstanding. Their arguments are gone. Their real problem is their hearts. Right? All of their religious rules, and now they're trying to kill Jesus. I mean, think of the irony. Instead of seeking to give rest on the Sabbath day, they're trying to take life, Jesus' life. All because Jesus says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus can say this because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's this astonishing thing that Jesus says in verse 8. It really is amazing that Jesus would claim to have authority over the Sabbath day. This is the day God commanded in Exodus. And Jesus is once again claiming that he has the authority of God himself. He is the Lord of the Sabbath day, and so he alone has a right to say what is and what is not lawful on this day. Mercy is lawful, Jesus says. God desires mercy. The Sabbath is, is a day to delight in God, delight in his world, delight in his redemption. It's not a day to be bound by a burdensome book of man-made laws. God wants his people to rest, to delight as he did on the first Sabbath day, to delight in the world that God made, and then to delight in the redemption he accomplished. And Jesus can say this because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Which brings us to the last point, which we'll go through very quickly, which is on taking on the yoke of Jesus. And go back to the Jesus' initial invitation. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says, come to me. But he goes on. He says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the yoke was an image for the law in Judaism. <clears throat> so Jesus is saying, take my law upon you. That's what he's saying. As some might think, you, you hear Jesus frees me from the burden of sin's guilt and religious performance, and you think, great, right, now I feel better, now I feel better about myself, I can live as I please. <clears throat> Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke upon yourself. Now he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, why is that? Why is Jesus' yoke easy and light while the yoke of the Pharisees was a heavy burden? Well, not because Jesus expects less, Right? I mean, that's not true. I mean, Jesus calls us to leave everything to follow him. Right? He calls us to put him above mother and father and family. 
He calls us to give up our lives for his sake. He calls us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, this is not a light thing that he calls us to. So why is Jesus' yoke lighter? It's lighter because Jesus calls us to come to him and first receive his rest. We no longer have to work to gain God's acceptance. We no longer have to work to build or protect our reputation. We no longer have to work to try to get satisfaction out of the world. We no longer have to work to fill a lack, right, to keep ahead, to to establish for ourselves our own righteousness. We work out of the fullness which is ours in Christ. Jesus gives us rest and we work out of that. We don't need to work to gain the smile of God. We work and strive because we have the smile of God in Jesus. We work and strive in response to that smile. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Receive the smile of the Father. Rest in the Father's love. Know that in Jesus your sins are forgiven. Your sins are wiped away. The Father loves you and delights in you. And then take upon yourself the yoke of Jesus. With all of your heart pursue obedience to King Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath the one who gives us rest. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we we need rest that comes from you. We know that all we can do is strive and strive and work and work, but our work never seems to end. And whether that's the, 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 the vocations that we have in this life or whether that's striving to be right with you, we just can't do it. We never get there. We pray that you would help us to cast ourselves on your mercy, to find rest in in your righteousness, in your blood, in your cross, to know there that our sins are forgiven, our souls are accepted, we are delighted in by the Father. Help us to rest in that. And then help us to, to work with all of our hearts out of that, not as something that is burdensome, but as a joy that we can respond to the love of our Father, that we can respond to the delight of our Father, that we can respond to the smile of our Father by by following you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.